One problem for divine command theory has persisted in various forms for about 2,500 years since Plato first raised it in his Euthyphro dialogue. Either God has reasons for issuing his commands, or he does not have reasons. If he has a reason for forbidding torture, say because of the intrinsic features of the act, then at least some moral truths are independent of God. Thus, the moral argument fails. If human beings are intrinsically valuable, that is, valuable in and of themselves, ends in themselves, then God is superfluous here. God is not required to give human beings moral worth. Maybe God could give additional value to human life, but that's all he could do. Maybe human life is not intrinsically valuable, but only valuable in virtue of something else. For example, in virtue of some fact about God. This seems to be the implicit view of many theists, whether they admit to it or not. As I said in the opening, there's an easy solution to the Euthyphro dilemma. It's not God's say-so that makes actions right or wrong. Rather, God says so because he can see what's good and bad about these acts. God issues his commandments and prohibitions on the basis of moral reasons. Think about a particular example. It's obvious to any non-sociopath that nurturing an infant is better than smashing it against a wall. God doesn't have to somehow make it the case that one of those is better than the other. He just sees that nurturing an infant is better than brutalizing it. Doesn't that make more sense than claiming there is no evaluative fact whatsoever until God stipulates that one is better than the other? To me, it makes more sense that God knows that one is better than the other, and that he doesn't have anything to do with making it so that one is better than the other. The alternative, that God has no moral reason for his injunctions, means that the law handed down by God is morally arbitrary. That's what arbitrary means in this context. There's no reason it is the way that it is. Either God has reasons, or he doesn't. The no reasons option is not only nonsensical, but it sounds kind of blasphemous. But the first option leaves the way open for a robust moral realism independent of God. To be clear, taking that first horn is not a problem unless you want to make the moral argument work at all costs. Plenty of theistic philosophers are not inclined to twist themselves into tortured logical pretzels as divine command theorists are. It's not a problem to say that God has reasons for issuing his commands. It's not a problem to say that human life is intrinsically valuable. You have gone wrong somewhere if you think these are problems for a theistic view. Divine command theorists often reject the Euthyphro dilemma as a false dichotomy, citing God's nature as an option for moral grounding. It's not God's commands or God's will that we should be focused on. It's God's nature that forms the ontological basis for moral truths. God is the good, so there's no dilemma. First, I don't see how this genuinely splits the horns of there is a reason or there is no reason. If his reason for his commands boils down to it accords with his nature, that seems to make the good quite hollow. We're verging on a might-makes-right conception of moral truth if whatever accords with God's will is, by definition, the good. But for many of us, the issue is whether this pushes the problem one step back. If God's nature is goodness itself, then sure, the properties that constitute his nature are good. God is good. But we can then ask, is God good because he has these properties? Or are these properties good only if and because he has them? Or as Jeremy Coons put it, are qualities like being merciful and loving traits of God because they're good? Or are they good because they are traits of God? 
Again, both horns are problematic. The first makes the good external to God. The second leaves us once again without any moral reason. God's nature is as it is. To this, Craig might reply that God is essentially loving. God just wouldn't be God unless he was loving. But why is God essentially loving rather than essentially hateful and malicious? Perhaps because there's something special about love, almost as if it's good independently of God. What I want you to do is, I, I, don't, uh, I don't want to spend more than 10 seconds on this because it's an unsavory task, but I want to invite you to think about a very gross, extraordinarily serious kind of immorality that people can perpetrate on one another. And, you know, a number of things come to mind. I don't want to dwell on the particulars, but just imagine a case, for instance, of political torture in which we have a despotic regime, a tyrannical regime, who has isolated those who um, are advocating on behalf of freedom, basic liberties, and uh, the, the folks at the top of the regime want to retain their power, and so they identify the people who are uh, members of the leadership of a pro-democracy force, and they apprehend them and take them to a torture cell, and then they begin to torture them in the very worst way that you can imagine. I'm not going to lay out the graphic details. Okay. If you contemplate a situation like that, my thought is this, that, the act, that what's going on in the torture cell is immoral. And I want, I want this to be an uncontroversial case. I guess the only way to do that is to lay out the details, but I actually am unwilling to do that. But just imagine the worst sort of torture a person can perpetrate on another. And then I want you to imagine something that's going to be very difficult for you, but I want you to try to do it anyway. And I, then I want you to try to imagine that God doesn't exist. And I want you to ask this question. I want you to imagine that God doesn't exist, and I want you to imagine surveying the scene that's going on in this torture cell. I want you to answer this simple question. Is what's going on there immoral? And I think the answer to that question is yes. And I think the answer to that question is clearly yes. That is, we can say of what's going on in that torture cell that it's immoral, and we don't need to make reference to God's will or God's commands in order to say that. We can, if we want, we can introduce that as a further additional explanation. But my thought is this, when you contemplate the nature of torture in and of itself, vividly, and see the kind of absolute dominance of one human being over another, kind of gross power imbalance, the kind of extraordinary pain that's inflicted there, the kind of if information is sought, the kind, the kind of unreliability of the information obtained, if you obtain any information at all. Think of all of those things, and my thought is this, thinking of those features of the action is enough to make it clearly immoral. You don't also need to ask yourself a further question. Does God forbid this? Does God allow this? Contemplate the nature of torture in and of itself, if you can vividly call that up to mind, is enough to know that that action is immoral. And if that's so, we've got the beginnings of an answer to my question, because what we've got is the possibility that actions are indeed more immoral, or if we took an exact opposite kind of case, moral, without introducing God into the picture, but instead just talking about the specific features that confer, that make an action immoral. So 
Is there an intrinsic moral difference between love and cruelty? Is it an essential part of his divine nature to hate the torture of babies because of the immoral features of the act? Or is there nothing intrinsically wrong with baby torture, requiring an external value imposer like God to make it the case that such acts are wrong? Asserting that God delivers his injunctions because of his nature doesn't really answer the question of moral arbitrariness. Why is his nature as it is? Replying that God is necessarily good doesn't answer the question at hand, since secular moral non-naturalists and theistic moral non-naturalists believe that moral truths are necessary, they obtain in all possible worlds. God's necessarily moral character could be intimately related to such normative truths. God is necessarily good? Well, maybe that's because God is omniscient and because there are non-natural, irreducibly normative truths that obtain across all possible worlds just like there are mathematical truths that obtain across all possible worlds. In that case, the theist would have a convincing answer to the Euthyphro dilemma, they can keep God's necessarily good nature, and you don't have to defend nonsense arguments against secular moral realists. So, on God's necessity, here's an analogy that can help clarify why I think grounding moral value in God's nature doesn't get rid of moral arbitrariness, even if we maintain that God is a necessary being. Suppose I ask whether you think everything happens for a reason, and you say, yes, everything happens for a reason, the laws of physics and the initial conditions of the universe. Now, I can infer from that answer that you do not think everything happens for a reason. The question was obviously about moral reasons. Is the universe utterly random with respect to good and evil, or is there some greater plan, a moral order behind the apparent chaos of life on Earth? The laws of physics response implies that your answer to my real question is no, since physical laws are indifferent to good and evil. Likewise, if we're talking about modified divine command theory, and I ask whether there are reasons God's moral nature is as it is, replying that he's a necessary being does not directly resolve the concern about moral arbitrariness. Again, God's necessarily moral nature could be explained by appealing to necessary moral truths like the ones Humer, Wielenberg, and Schaefer-Landau believe in, but then you'd have to give up the moral argument. So, some apologists might protest that I'm not taking the idea that God is literally identical with good seriously. And that's correct. You might as well say God is identical with the mathematical itself. And likewise, we can ask whether God had any particular reason for making 2 and 2 equal 4, or whether he didn't have a reason. Is there any reason his nature is that way, and so on? We could ask whether he even has the power to impose a completely different mathematical structure on the world where 2 and 2 equal 300. While necessary truths having to do with logic, math, and morality could be framed as limitations on God's power, in no way is it a problematic limitation on God's power that should cause you to spiral out of control and say borderline incoherent things like, oh, God is identical to the good itself. These are not worrisome limits if we're even construing them as limits. Though, when it comes to grounding morality in God, I do know what it means to say that God sets the standard, but only on a subjectivist conception of moral truth. If you're openly embracing a divine form of moral subjectivism, then your view is at least coherent. But if you insist that you believe in objective morality, stance-independent moral truths, but also that a tri-personal being is identical with stance-independent moral truths, you are speaking gibberish. More likely, you're just redefining crucial terms to make it coherent. 
David Hume's is-ought gap is roughly the idea that it's impossible to derive an evaluative conclusion from wholly non-evaluative premises. One cannot deduce conclusions about what ought to be the case from purely descriptive premises about what is the case. There's a logical gap between ought and is, between evaluative and descriptive facts. Okay, so what's the significance of that? Some people seem to think this is a problem for all moral realists, or somehow just a problem for atheists who are moral realists, which is genuinely baffling. There seems to be this widespread assumption that you need to start with purely descriptive facts, perform some alchemy, and then get evaluative facts out of descriptive facts. But why would anyone grant that assumption? Why not instead maintain that one needs to start with purely evaluative facts and somehow get descriptive facts out of evaluative facts? Why think we need to bridge the gap at all? Why can't there just be different kinds of things in the world? Everything in the world doesn't all have to be reducible to one class of entities. I'm happy to grant that you can't get an ought from an is. You can't reach an evaluative conclusion from wholly non-evaluative premises. But who says you have to do that? Again, some people just seem totally unshakable in their belief that you just have to do that. You have to start with descriptive facts and then somehow get evaluative facts out of them. Or else you can't be a moral realist or you can't be an atheist and a moral realist. But So listen, I just issued a new decree of rationality. It starts with the profound realization that you can't get concrete objects out of wholly abstract entities. I find that when people are discussing physics and math, there never fails to be an imperceptible change from discussion of abstracta to concreta. But how is this gap between abstract and concrete bridged? Until someone can explain to me how you can get concrete objects out of purely abstract entities, I just won't believe in concrete objects. Everyone from now on has to share my bizarre assumption that you must start with abstract entities alone and somehow put them together in just the right way such that concreta emerge. So, I don't think you can get concrete objects from purely abstract objects, but I don't see why I'd have to. Just start with concreta. Likewise, I can grant the truth of Hume's law without it being a threat to moral objectivity, or whatever it's supposed to be a threat to. We can just start with evaluative truths, taking them as basic. I'm not sure why the world wouldn't be a sundry place filled with all kinds of different things. I don't see any need to bridge the gap. Hume's law may pose a problem for some varieties of ethical naturalism which seeks a reductionist account of moral truths to descriptive truths, but even that needs to be argued for, and in any event, we could just be non-reductionists in the sense I've been outlining. Our inability to bridge the gap does not pose a real threat to moral objectivity, let alone a threat to moral objectivity but only for atheists. While there are alleged counterexamples to Hume's law, I think there's some interpretation of it that's correct. And as we've been discussing, I think its import is often misunderstood. To quote Michael Humer in Ethical Intuitionism, We should understand what I take the doctrine's significance to be. I do not claim that Hume's law refutes ethical reductionism. Rather, I see Hume's law as an important lemma in my larger argument that one cannot account for moral knowledge without appealing to something like ethical intuition. To that end, I argue, a. that we cannot know moral truths by observation, b. that we cannot know non-trivial moral truths by deducing them from non-moral truths, c. that we cannot know non-trivial moral truths by conceptual analysis, and d. that we cannot know moral truths by scientific reasoning or inference to the best explanation. 
This understanding of the use I make of Hume's law has implications for how we should treat alleged exceptions to the law. Such exceptions are important only if they represent possible ways of coming to know moral truths on the basis of non-moral truths. Thus, if there should prove to be a valid deductive inference containing only non-evaluative premises and an evaluative conclusion, but for some reason this inference could not be the source of our knowledge of the conclusion, then it would be irrelevant to my purposes here. It would be an exception to Hume's law as traditionally stated, but not one that damages my argument in this chapter. End quote. So I included that just to give you a taste of how Hume's law might factor into an argument discussed in a meta-ethical textbook like that one, since, as I've been explaining, the doctrine's significance is often misunderstood. Hume's law can provide another arrow in the quiver against divine command theory. The problem can be summed up as follows. It may be a descriptive fact that God commands X, or God forbids Y, but we also need an evaluative fact in the mix. Namely, we ought to obey God's commands. That's a necessary part of the puzzle. I could annoyingly ask the poorly formed question, but where does that fact come from? My main point, though, is that knowing what God commands isn't enough. It seems as though you need a basic, primitive, unexplained fact about what one ought to do here. Even if you know what God commands, you haven't answered why we ought to obey his commands. Maybe you think it's a very reasonable thought that we should obey God's commands, but it's a separate, evaluative fact nonetheless. The descriptive facts about what God commands are not sufficient. We need an evaluative ought fact, at least implicitly, to make it right to follow God and wrong to disobey him. But what could this fact be other than an irreducibly normative truth, exactly like the objective evaluative facts the defender of the moral argument is so desperate to avoid? Further, it's hard to see how a belief in a basic moral truth, even something that seems as obvious to the theist as we ought to obey God, it's hard to see how that could be justified in the complete absence of ethical intuition. And our universal reliance on ethical intuition is one of my central points. But setting aside moral epistemology for a moment, could it be the case that God ontologically grounds the truth of we ought to obey God's commands? Should we obey God's commands because God commands us to obey his commands? Well, I mean, I don't think so. <laughs> hmm. Should we obey God's commands because God commands us to obey his commands? Whether we ought to obey his commands is the issue we're trying to suss out in the first place. The whole thing is just dizzyingly circular. So let's back up a step. The question is, why should anyone obey God's commands? Craig and others maintain that we are obligated to act in certain ways because God commands it. But in the absence of an explanation for why anyone should obey these commands, I don't think moral obligation has actually been explained. What if we don't want to obey God? If that seems like an annoying question, then you know how we feel when the equivalent question is posed to the atheist. What if we don't want to be moral? So here's one bad answer to both questions. There's punishment in store for those who violate moral obligations. Whether it's the law, or some amount of suffering in the hereafter, you won't get away with it. But this is just a naked appeal to self-interest. It's not a moral reason to obey God or do what's right. An appeal to prudential reasons 
is not the same as an appeal to moral reasons. So here's a much better answer to the question, why obey God? If I were a theist, this is how I would answer it. We should obey God's commands because God is omniscient, and thus knows what's morally right. He's also perfectly loving, and would never command us to do something wrong. Even though, if I were a theist, this would be my answer, most theists wouldn't like it since it presupposes that there are objective moral facts independent of God. He's just the infallible knower and conveyor of these facts. I think that's pretty cool, but apparently it's not enough. Perhaps he is responsible for aligning our moral intuitions with these moral facts, but still they're independent and external to God himself. So if there aren't any such facts, but if we still say we should obey God because God knows what's good, then this is just stating that God knows what he commands, <laughs> or he knows his own nature, and he'd never command us to do anything other than what he commands. He'd never command us to do anything that doesn't accord with his nature. Uh, okay, I mean, that could be true of a lot of people. I'll never command you to do anything other than what I command you to do. God knows what's good. Doesn't really seem like a great explanation of why we should obey God, unless you affirm the existence of independent moral facts. It's obviously circular to say we should obey God's commands because God commanded us to obey his commands. But Craig actually denies that this is problematic. The question is why I should obey God's commands. And Craig's answer is that God commands that I obey his commands. Okay, so why should I obey that command? Well, because God commanded that I obey that command. Craig claims to see no problem with this. Here's another option to consider. Maybe it's just a brute, unexplained fact that you have to obey God's commands. After all, people in my position find themselves appealing to brute facts. Why can't the theist do the same? It's just a brute fact that you ought to obey God's commands. Most people in this debate, everyone from Craig to humor, will concede that one must tolerate some unexplained facts in their theory. There are going to be theoretical primitives. But if we're invoking moral axioms, shouldn't they seem obvious? Like, if I just say it's a brute fact that there's something rather than nothing, we can debate the merits of that view, but surely it's more plausible than saying it's just a brute fact that turtles exist. We seek out evolutionary explanations of turtles because no one even entertains the idea that turtle existence would just be a brute fact. Well, I'm sure someone does, but look, not all purported, brute, unexplained facts are equally plausible candidates for that slot. Something like suffering is bad seems like a more obvious candidate for a basic moral axiom than one ought to always obey the commands of the tripersonal first cause. It's just obvious that pain is bad. It's obvious that we shouldn't punish the innocent. It's comparatively far less obvious that one should obey God's commands. Don't you want to find out what the commands are first? What if they're like the commands given by Allah, or Yahweh in the Old Testament? So we should focus on that point about theoretical primitives for a moment, since many moral anti-realists and defenders of the moral argument, who not coincidentally say many of the same things, are bothered by this point. Gavin Ortland, in his defense of the moral argument, said that he finds it troubling just how brute non-theistic moral realism turns out to be, which on some level is fair enough. The title of Michael Humer's response to William Lane Craig is Groundless Morals. What Gavin wants is a grounding of morality. But as we've been discussing, when you turn the same critical eye to divine command theory, it doesn't rise to the challenge. So here's what I consider to be an Oppian objection to the moral argument that comes to us from Joe Schmid, which he calls the both-end-and-primitives objection. 
question. So the atheist, let's say, thinks that torturing someone is objectively wrong. Well, you can ask why. And, you know, maybe they're going to cite certain facts about torture and facts about the victim and facts about suffering. Well, then you can say, oh, yeah, but why is suffering bad? You've kind of hit a primitive bedrock there because it is, right? Maybe that's either self-explanatory. Maybe it's not self-explanatory if we think that self-explanation is incoherent. But maybe this is just a primitive. But it's justifiably taken to be a primitive. Or maybe you think eudaimonia or flourishing or happiness or the flourishing of sentient beings or whatever is something that is just the primitive bedrock with respect to explaining why certain things are good. So, yeah, you can play the why game with the atheist. But, of course, the atheist can turn around and similarly play the why game with the theist. What it metaphysically explains why torturing someone for fun is wrong. They might say certain rights or suffering is bad, but then you can ask why. Then they might say, oh, well, because God commands it to be that way or because God's nature is such that. And then they give some story about God's nature. But again, you can still ask why. Why does God's nature give rise to that? Why does God's nature forbid rape? Why is God's nature such that it specifies that suffering is bad? Why is God's nature such that it specifies that human flourishing is good? You can ask these questions just as much of the theist. And they're eventually just going to have to say, lest they admit an infinitely descending regress of groundings, they're, they're also going to have to end in some kind of primitive bedrock. So both of us are ending in primitive bedrocks. We just fundamentally say, X grounds the badness or rightness or wrongness or goodness or badness of something, and that's that. End of story. You can try to ask, why does it ground the, the wrongness or badness or whatever? And again, we've just hit explanatory bedrock. And so it's not at all clear that the theist is in any better position than the non-theist with respect to grounding morality in this case. Both have a ground. It's just that their grounds are different. Both end in something that just primitively grounds, let's say, the badness of suffering or that primitively grounds the goodness of the flourishing of sentient beings or whatever. It's not at all clear why we should prefer a primitive ground, which is something like God's nature is such as to specify that this is bad or God's nature is such as to specify that this is good. It's not at all clear why that is a better primitive than the various primitives that I've been suggesting for the non-theist. And there's actually a really good article that makes a point that's quite similar to this, and it is called Could Morality Have a Source by Chris Heathwood. It's published in the Journal of Ethics and Social Philosophy. And he argues quite convincingly that ultimately every single meta-ethical theory is going to have some kind of primitive bedrock, that there's going to be some sort of moral truth or some sort of link between a grounding fact and the moral truth that it grounds. There's going to be some sort of fact like that has to be primitive on any theory whatsoever. So he says, it is a common idea that morality or moral truths, if there are any, must have some sort of source. If it is wrong to make a promise or if our fundamental moral obligation is to maximize happiness, these facts must come from somewhere, perhaps from human nature or from our agreements or God. Such facts cannot be ungrounded, floating free. I not only deny this, I believe it's opposite. If we look more closely at the moral theories that are supposed to be paradigm examples of theories under which morality has a source, we will see that these theories too posit ungrounded moral truths. We are anyway here inquiring into the sort of explanation constituted by a kind of metaphysical grounding. And this metaphysical grounding, whatever else it is, is an asymmetric relation. If Q is true in virtue of P, P cannot also be true in virtue of Q. So the basic problem that he's pinpointing here is that we have this claim, right, which is DCT, divine command theory. And it's saying that an act is morally obligatory if and only if and because God commands it. Now, we then ask, is God, in some way or another, the source of DCT itself, right? Because this is itself a kind of moral claim. It's making a claim about the conditions under which something is morally obligatory. So this is itself a moral claim. And so then we can ask, well, in virtue of what is this moral claim true? Well, if it's true in virtue of something about God, well, then, again, we have just created another moral claim. Namely, the moral claim of DCT itself would then be true just in case and because of that more fundamental feature of God, which is explaining the moral truth of DCT. But again, that link between this more fundamental feature of God and DCT is itself a moral claim, right? Because DCT, as we've shown, is a moral claim. And so we are talking about the conditions under which a particular moral claim is true. 
In particular, we're asking what makes it true. That is itself a moral claim. And so then we can still further ask, what is the grounding of that moral claim? If you're going to posit a still more fundamental feature of God, well, then you could see where we're going. We're off on a vicious, infinite regress. So it seems as though we have to bottom out in some sort of primitive moral claim here. The only way to avoid a primitive moral truth, then, that is a moral truth that isn't itself grounded in something more fundamental, the only way to avoid that is then to adopt something like self-grounding, where one and the same thing grounds itself. But that is, of course, absurd. Grounding is a priority relation. One thing is due to or owed to another, and it obtains in virtue of that other. And it's well nigh universally granted in philosophy that grounding relations are asymmetric. If one thing grounds another, then that further thing doesn't ground the first thing. So everyone, it seems, is going to have to admit groundless moral facts. It is moral facts that don't themselves have any further explanation or ground. And so it's no mark against a non-theistic theory that, oh, well, it can't ground all of morality. No, because neither can a theistic theory. Broadly speaking, there are two classes of moral realism, and as we've moved along, I'm sure that you've gleaned at least the gist of my view, Humer's view, Wielenberg's view, Schaefer-Landau's view. We're all atheists and moral realists. Specifically, we subscribe to what's called ethical non-naturalism. Among moral realists, there's a divide between the moral naturalists and the non-naturalists, and if it isn't obvious, the naturalism in this context has nothing to do with God. The difference between the naturalists and the non-naturalists comes down to a metaphysical thesis and an epistemological thesis. The naturalists are reductionists. They try to reduce moral truths to natural facts. That is, they try to reduce evaluative facts to concrete descriptive facts. The non-naturalists, on the other hand, are not reductionists. They think moral truths are basic and not able to be reduced to descriptive facts. They're taken to be in the same general category as numbers and propositions. Further, the two major moral realist camps differ in their epistemology, not just their ontology. The non-naturalists rely heavily on intuition, tending slightly more towards rationalism, whereas the naturalists try to be more in line with the spirit of empiricism and scientific inquiry. So, I disagree with the moral naturalists. I think there are irreducibly normative truths, evaluative facts that cannot be explained in terms of something more fundamental. With or without God, the chain of explanation has to end somewhere, and basic axioms, illuminated by moral intuition and the light of reason, seem like the most plausible candidates to me. If you recall Hume's law earlier, I didn't say that the gap between is and ought refutes reductionism on its own. I cited Humer, who said that the gap is an important premise and a larger argument for his particular brand of non-naturalism called ethical intuitionism. Ethical intuitionism, roughly speaking, is a fusion of the ontology of moral non-naturalism and the epistemological thesis of phenomenal conservatism. We're not really digging into that now, I just kind of wanted to gesture towards a couple of interviews I had with Michael Humer about these things. So, outside the context of apologetics, I discussed meta-ethics, nihilism, moral fictionalism, moral disagreement, evolutionary debunking arguments, the companions and guilt argument, and much else with Michael Humer when I was first getting more into the subject as a result of reading his books. We also spoke about phenomenal conservatism in another interview, 
So do check those out if you want to learn more about metaethics and epistemology outside of the howling wasteland of F-tier apologetics. One major stumbling block for the moral argument is whether God could ground moral objectivity. There are two distinct propositions on which the moral argument crucially rests. A. God can ground moral objectivity. And B. This is the only way to get moral objectivity. Both, in my view, are completely indefensible. If you want to refute B, you need to refute ethical naturalism and non-naturalism. As for A, God can ground moral objectivity. We can raise objections based on intrinsicality and Euthyphro-related considerations, but there's a less appreciated reason for rejecting the idea that God can provide the basis for moral objectivity. Grounding morality in God bottoms out in a form of moral subjectivism. It's just not an objective theory. I'm not saying you can't ground morality in a person, or three persons, as the case may be. You can. There's a term for that class of views. Moral subjectivism. In standard classification schemes, subjectivism is a form of moral anti-realism. It stands in contrast with theories of objective morality, which is probably why defenders of the moral argument and moral anti-realists often say the same exact things. Divine command theorists talk as if they've provided a way to moral objectivity, but that's only because they're working with a funny definition of objective, which people like Craig are completely explicit about. As long as there's a standard, a reference point independent of human beings, then it counts as objective in some sense. So here's what Michael Humer says about this. Quote, Now, the first problem for Craig's account of morality is that it is simply not an objectivist theory. If true, it makes morality subjective, not objective. This is because Craig holds that morality constitutively depends on the attitudes of an observer. The observer in this case is a very interesting one, but an observer nonetheless. Craig might object. He might say that morality is objective as long as it doesn't depend on human observers. It can still depend on non-human observers. I try not to spend too much time on semantic debates, so I will just say that I think this would be an artificial way of drawing boundaries. Physical facts, the paradigm of objectivity, are not constitutively dependent on any observers whatsoever. They can exist by themselves. If one says that moral facts need some special observer, then one is conceding that they are not objective in the robust sense that physical facts are. In that case, I think one's view is more like that of thinkers who reduce morality to facts about other observers' attitudes than it is like the ones who hold that moral facts are just as objective as physical facts. Eric Wielenberg and I are robust moral realists. We think moral facts are independent of anyone's attitudes. Next to us, Craig is the subjectivist in the room. So, Craig doesn't agree that his divine command theory is a form of subjectivism, partly on the grounds that moral value is grounded in God's nature not God's will or attitudes. I don't think this makes any real difference. If morality constitutively depends on a person, or three persons, then it's hard to see how a closer look at the details will reveal objective, person-independent moral truths. How could it be independent of persons? You're explicitly grounding it in three persons. Independent of humans is a terrible and obviously artificial and ad hoc definition of objective. Plenty of things are independent of humans that are obviously not objective in the sense that, say, physical facts are objective. If aliens invented a game like chess, 
I don't think the rules would count as objective just because they're independent of humans. I don't think social rules invented by chimpanzees would count as objective either. Greg would respond that while those are not human observers, they're still finite observers. Oh, they're finite observers. So I suppose if it were an infinite observer, that would make it objective. And so would three observers, who were also just one observer. Again, this is a self-evidently gerrymandered way of drawing boundaries. Craig is not giving a conception of objectivity that maps onto the meaning of the term in any other context. He's just defending the moral argument at all costs. And if that means defining objective as independent of finite observers and or dependent on an infinite observer, then he's more than happy to do that. Stubbornly, the age of the Earth is an objective physical fact. It doesn't constitutively depend on any person, finite or infinite. When we say it's objective, nobody means constitutively dependent on an infinite observer. At any rate, if you did mean that, you would clearly be less of an objectivist than someone who thinks that fact doesn't depend on any observer. As Humor put it, next to us, Craig is the subjectivist in the room. Plus, Craig acknowledges that moral duties, on his account, are constituted by God's commands. In a nutshell, good and evil are grounded in God's nature, but right and wrong are constituted by God's commands, and so are dependent on his will. So Craig can't avoid the fact that he's a subjectivist when it comes to moral duties. But even on that point, Craig doesn't see a problem, since God is a necessary being. According to Craig, the troubling aspect of subjectivism is the apparent arbitrariness and contingency of moral truths. Necessity should avoid this worry, in his view. So I don't agree, for a number of reasons. Imagine a subjectivist necessitarian. They adopt moral subjectivism explicitly, but they think everything is necessary. Nothing could be other than it is. Would that suffice as a defense of subjectivism and put to rest all the objections that non-subjectivists typically have? No, I don't think so. A subjectivist who also thinks everything is necessary will not have allayed the worries of non-subjectivists. So let's look at Craig responding to Humor to get a fuller picture here. Quote, What about Humor's objections to divine command theory's account of the objectivity of moral duties? Here we return to Humor's allegation that divine command theory is a subjectivist theory. We saw that the allegation is flatly false with respect to moral values, since these are independent of the divine will. But what about moral duties, which are constituted by God's commands, and so dependent on his will? Truths about right and wrong are not independent of God's attitudes. Now, when one reflects that much of what God morally wills and commands is willed and commanded by him necessarily, being entailed by the divine nature, and therefore neither contingent nor arbitrary, then the dependence of right and wrong on God's attitudes serves mainly to call into question humor's characterization of objective morality. Attitude dependence is supposed to express the contingency and arbitrariness of the feature so dependent, and that is what makes subjectivism in morality objectionable. But that fails to significantly apply to God. A better definition of objective morality would appeal to independence of the attitudes of human observers or finite observers. Humor does not like this move because physical facts, the paradigm of objectivity, are not constitutively dependent on any observers whatsoever. Now, even if we reject observer-dependent interpretations of quantum mechanics, still, Humer's affirmation fails of special relativity theory, which holds that simultaneity and relations of earlier and later are indeed observer-dependent. This most emphatically does not mean that such relations are subjective, but that they are relative to inertial frames. Moreover, on theism, 
Physical facts are no more independent of God's attitude than our moral facts. Indeed, being contingent, they are less so, for they depend upon God's will to create the physical objects and preserve them in being. Observer dependence, then, ought not have reference to God, lest the distinction between objective and subjective collapse. End quote. So, there are several questionable aspects of that passage. Um, let's go in reverse order. Actually, I heard this point raised in the Q&A in the debate between Justin Schieber and Eric Hernandez, which I was present for, and Justin and I talked about this in our post-debate breakdown. So, Craig warns that if we define subjective as observer dependence, then the distinction between subjective and objective will collapse for theists, since everything depends on God and that seems like it should count against Humer's definition. After all, if God created the universe and sustains it in existence, wouldn't everything be subjective in the sense of observer dependence, including physical facts? So Humer's definition is just a bad definition. So I think this would be a really interesting objection if you were a pantheist or a panentheist, but Humer doesn't define subjectivity in the context of metaethics as mere observer dependence in any sense you can imagine. He explicitly defines it as constitutive dependence, which is not analogous to all forms of dependence. When we say X depends on Y, we could mean a range of things. Maybe X causally depends on Y, like you causally depend on your parents. But you're not constituted by your parents, like wood constitutes a table. These are obviously different kinds of dependence. Likewise, there are different kinds of observer dependence. The placebo effect is more akin to the previous example of causal dependence, where the attitudes of observers cause differing outcomes, but that's not an example of constitutive dependence. Examples of that would include being funny, or sexually attractive, or boring, or riveting, and so on. As Humor explains, a subjective property is one that is at least partly constituted by its tendency to elicit a certain reaction from observers. In other words, if funniness is subjective, Part of what it is for a thing to be funny is for observers to have or be disposed to have some particular sort of reaction to it. End quote. So if we say a movie or a book is boring, that's because it tends to elicit a certain reaction from observers. For moral subjectivists, morality is constituted by the attitudes, opinions, dispositions, reactions, approval, slash disapproval, etc. of a person or persons. Now, a lot of divine command theorists will make spurious claims about how moral obligations and duties are always connected to persons or some such, which is why God would make the best explanation for them. I think they should just embrace their subjectivism. They're just obviously not in the same category as philosophers like Russ Schaefer-Landau, Michael Humer, Eric Wielenberg, Thomas Nagel, and so on, who truly think morality is objective. On seven being greater than two, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks about it. No one's will enters into the picture. Moral realists think evaluative facts are like that. Divine command theorists plainly do not. But in any event, physical facts do not constitutively depend on God. I mean, maybe if you're a pantheist or a panentheist, but even then I'm not sure if it fits. So, look, if you're a Christian pantheist, whatever that means, then we can talk. Right now, I'm only addressing, you know, 99% of the defenders of the moral argument, like Craig, who are not pantheists. So, Craig doesn't like Humer's claim that physical facts are objective for another reason. Quote, Now, even if we reject observer-dependent interpretations of quantum mechanics, 
Still, Humer's affirmation fails of special relativity theory, which holds that simultaneity and relations of earlier and later are indeed observer-dependent. This most emphatically does not mean that such relations are subjective, but that they are relative to inertial frames. End quote. This strikes me more as rhetoric than providing a genuine counterexample that should make us worry about Humer's definition. As Craig is no doubt aware, an observer need not be a mind or a person, and in relativity, a frame does not need to be occupied by a mind or a person either. Besides, it's unclear whether Humer himself is targeted by the point about relativity, since he has an unorthodox interpretation of relativity. And so does Craig. So next, Craig says, Truth about right and wrong are not independent of God's attitudes. Now when one reflects that much of what God morally wills and commands is willed and commanded by him necessarily, being entailed by the divine nature, and therefore neither contingent nor arbitrary, then the dependence of right and wrong on God's attitudes serves mainly to call into question Humer's characterization of objective morality. Attitude dependence is supposed to express the contingency and arbitrariness of the feature so dependent, and that is what makes subjectivism in morality objectionable. So I think some theists would certainly have an issue with claiming that God does what he does necessarily, that his actions are necessary. But let's set that aside since theists don't really have their story straight about divine freedom on the one hand and necessity on the other. I think Craig is only half right that attitude dependence is, quote, supposed to express the contingency and arbitrariness of the feature so dependent, and that is what makes subjectivism in morality objectionable. So that's certainly part of what makes it objectionable, but I think what makes attitude dependence objectionable is not just contingency and arbitrariness, but just attitude dependence. It just seems like an implausible reduction. When we give examples like funniness or boringness as subjective, the point is not just to draw attention to contingency and arbitrariness, we're trying to induce an intellectual appearance. Like, it seems that this is the correct account of X. It seems right that whether a movie is boring or riveting constitutively depends on the minds of observers. To say that the movie was boring is just to describe your reaction, attitudes, opinions, etc. That is the stuff of boringness. And consider that it seems perfectly reasonable to say that the same movie was riveting for me, but boring for you, or boring to a hypothetical alien. It's not that I'm right and you're wrong. It's subjective. So, for reasons that we've already covered pretty extensively, I think divine command theory is not free from moral arbitrariness, even if we stipulate that God is metaphysically necessary. In many ways, it's just beside the point. I ask if there are reasons God's moral nature is as it is, and you reply, he's a necessary being. That's sort of like asking if you think everything happens for a reason, and you say, yeah, the laws of physics. Well, that's obviously not what I was asking, was it? Contrary to what Craig asserts, it's not just the contingency of subjectivism that makes it suspect. For example, whether or not it's right to genocide an ethnic minority depends entirely on what people contingently think about it. There's a prima facie plausibility that the age of the earth is objective, while the boringness of a movie is subjective. Those two claims just sound right. And we can press further, and those initial judgments seem to make more sense. Now, would it make any sense to say that the movie was objectively boring because an infinite observer necessarily finds it boring? To me, it would not seem as though boringness had been elevated to objective status just because an infinite observer 
necessarily forms a particular attitude. I mean, again, it is just a self-evidently gerrymandered definition of objectivity. You're just defending the moral argument at all costs. You are obviously not getting to objective morality from God. So, you can think of divine command theorists as moral reductionists. They take moral truths and reduce them to something more fundamental. There is an asymmetric grounding relation in place. God's commands and or his nature take explanatory and ontological priority with respect to moral truths. In other words, he grounds moral truths. People like Humer and Wielenberg are non-reductionists. They take moral truths as irreducible. As a non-reductionist, to try to help you see where I'm coming from, just replace your preferred reduction base with some other candidate. If you tried to reduce moral truths to facts about rocks, that would prima facie sound like an implausible reduction of moral truths. The problem is not really the contingency and arbitrariness of the view. It just doesn't seem like moral truths are grounded in descriptive facts about rocks. You would need some very powerful arguments to support that view, to overcome its initial implausibility. Likewise, I don't think moral truths are grounded in descriptive facts of any kind, including descriptive facts about God's nature or commands. So, to be clear, even as a non-reductionist, I don't think every reductionist view is equally implausible. My priors differ across competing hypotheses, and I don't think the theistic hypotheses are all indefensible. I've tried to be clear from the start. Divine command theory cannot provide us with objective morality. I did not say God couldn't ground morality. It's just that this would amount to a cosmic form of moral subjectivism, which I think theists should be more brave about embracing. You don't believe in objective evaluative facts. You do believe in a standard that is independent of humans, and that might seem like it's close enough to objectivity if you never think about it, but doubling down on the moral argument will lead you to some very silly positions, like, if the observer is infinite, constitutive dependence actually counts as objective. Just embrace moral subjectivism already. As a side note, let me reference something Chris Watkins said in an interview on Parker Sedeckes' podcast about Foucault. So he thinks that the biblical Christian view doesn't fit neatly into the objective-subjective-truth divide. And he doesn't want to let analytic philosophers do the table setting, because once you're operating on a more standard paradigm, you're going to lose important features of the biblical view as he sees it. It's not objective, but it's also not quite subjective. In his words, you have to let the Bible do the table setting. And an advantage of a view like that is that it doesn't try to shoehorn God-grounded morality into the category of objective truth. So I'd be open-minded to do a case for that. You could also just embrace objective morality, if you're so inclined. There's been an escape hatch available to the theist this entire time. Are God's commands good because God issues them? Or does God issue them because they're good? It's the latter. God issues them because they're good. Are there reasons God gave those commands? Yes. So you think God doesn't ground moral truth, that he's superfluous to moral truth? Uh, yeah. Just like two and two managed to equal four all on their own, without God saying so. Turns out, torturing a baby is wrong, all on its own, without God saying so. That might not be the most pious-sounding view, but why would a genuine truth-seeker care about that? Though, one might argue that it seems impious to suggest that God's goodness is so conspicuously hollow 
When a divine command theorist says, God is good, they're really not saying much. God is good roughly translates to, God is the way he is, and God commands what he commands. Wow, praise the Lord! God commands what he commands. On some level, wouldn't it be more respectful to God to think that his moral perfection is not an amorphous, contentless blob that just gloms on to the way he is? I mean, if it feels weird to say it sounds as if he's living up to some standard, keep in mind, what we're talking about is love, and justice, and mercy, and moral goodness itself. Isn't loving kindness good? The fact that God is perfectly loving isn't bled of its meaning on an objectivist view. It's given meaning by an objectivist view, a meaning that is not gratingly circular. And if it's unclear, I'm not exactly blazing a path here. Plenty of Christian philosophers take this route. Before we move along, here are two additional problems for divine command theory, or three depending on how you count them. Like other moral subjectivists, divine command theorists must hold that seemingly horrible actions like genocide, terrorism, and torture are morally right as long as the appropriate person or a group of three persons endorses them. For Jews, Muslims, and Christians, this is not just a hypothetical concern. For example, in the Old Testament, God sends supernatural snakes to attack the Israelites, men, women, and children alike, for being insufficiently deferential to him. He also sends two bears to maul a group of boys for being rude. He also commands a genocide, floods the entire world, and you get the point. Of course, none of that happened, but the point is that we couldn't say that it was wrong on divine command theory. In fact, if you're really a divine command theorist, you should wait to find out whether those things happened before you make a judgment. If they're just metaphors or something, then, phew, you get to trust your moral intuitions like the rest of us. But if they really happened, as hundreds of millions of Christians believe and have believed, then the divine command theorist is committed to endorsing those actions, and whatever God decides to do next week. Second, a problem with grounding morality in God, in addition to the fact that it's doubtful that God exists, is that even if he does exist, God's nature and commands are extremely uncertain. Oh, we're grounding morality in God's commands? And what does God command exactly? The problem of knowing what God wants is not a trivial concern. The various branches and denominations of the Abrahamic religions have core disagreements that have historically resulted in brutal executions and other forms of violent conflict. People who agree that moral truth is grounded in God, emphatically, do not agree about what God wants from us. And in addition to this epistemological problem, one might argue that it's a little surprising that God is trying to communicate his moral law to us, and yet there is so much moral disagreement among theists. Even if we restrict things to Christians, there is so much moral disagreement. It's not like ethical intuitionists think that these non-natural properties are like desperately trying to communicate with us. They're making us in their image and imprinting their moral law on our heart. And besides, moral realists will often make the case that moral disagreement 
at least in our case, is seriously overblown. I talked about this a bit with Michael Humer in our conversation about metaethics. So, in sum, divine command theory is a terrible metaethical theory. For one, it is falsely advertised as providing objective morality. At best, it can only do so with an ad hoc, gerrymandered definition of objective morality. Because it is a subjectivist theory, it leaves you with the problem of horrible endorsements, where certain actions, like torture, are in fact morally right, as long as the appropriate person or group endorses them. It also creates new areas of moral disagreement, since even if God exists and morality is grounded in him, we don't know what he commands. And of course, it's vulnerable to Euthyphro-style dilemmas, which either will lead us to ethical truths independent of God, thus refuting divine command theory, or leave us with nothing more than a morally arbitrary set of rules, backed by force. Thank you.